You may be seated. Well, for some time now, uh, we've been going through the gospel according to Luke. I've subtitled it, Seeing Jesus Together in the Gospel of Luke. And we've now reached the end, almost, of the fifth chapter. Uh, Luke is probably... Perhaps Matthew and Luke are both pretty voluminous in terms of their content and what they account for us. Uh, and yet we today are coming, having Jesus having come and begun to pull and in his disciples. The first four we've already seen, uh, Matthew, uh, I mean, excuse me, um, uh, Peter and Andrew and the sons of, of thunder, um, John and James, and we're going to see an addition today in just a few moments. Uh, our text, Jesus has been around set up base camp, so to speak, in Capernaum around the Sea of Galilee, and he is, has done a number of miracles and healings, and now Jesus is going to bring in another one of his followers in the text today. And there's going to be also some other elements uh, that take place as we continue to see the Lord's way in which he was bringing God's kingdom and dealt with the obstacles against that. Luke chapter 5, verses 27 through 39 is our scripture reading and you're welcome to read from your Bible or Pew Bible, your device, your, your own personal Bible or the screen or some other uh, way. But remember, this is the Word of God, so hear it very carefully. After he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors, and sinners. And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And they said to him, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece 
from a new garment and puts it on an old garment, if he does, he will tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine desires new. For he says, the old is good. The grass withers, the flower fades, but God's word will always remain. Let us pray. Father, will you now once again guide us as we consider this your holy word. And Father, may it yield the peaceable fruit of righteousness in us. And we today, once again, would see Jesus and him only. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What's the scariest day of the year? No, it's not Halloween. It's not watching a horror movie. Of course you know. It's April 15th. <laughs> tax day. The taxed man cometh. Don't forget that. Ooh. Scary. I know it's not fun having to pay taxes. But as bad as we have it now, for instance, with a fairly recent massive increase in IRS agents, it actually was a lot worse. As bad as that is, it was a lot worse in ancient Palestine 2,000 years ago. We think we, they get a lot from us. We who are dutiful taxpayers, and they do. Sometimes I'd like to see it less. But what it was in Jesus' time, it was far more corrupt than anything that we probably have to deal with in that venue. You see, what do we know about tax, collector in, tax collectors in Jesus' day? Well, the first thing we know is that tax collectors were sellouts to the cause, to the kingdom of God, to all the hopes and promises that had been given to the people of God. They were traitors. Why? Because they worked with the most hated scum in their time, the Roman 
government. Secondly, as far as what do we know about tax collectors, so they were traitors, number one. But secondly, tax collectors were awarded by the Roman government franchises. You know what a franchise is? McDonald's. You buy into the franchise. And then hopefully you're going to get some real profit out of having bought that franchise. Well, that's exactly what happened with Rome and the tax collectors. The tax collectors often were those who had some means to be able to start and be able to buy their way into the and get a franchise. But they usually went to the highest bidder. So they would end up putting a lot into their venture, their franchise. But guess what? It had guaranteed results of good return because they had Roman soldiers helping enforce the collection when needed. You see, the franchise owner collected two types of taxes. The stated tax that was actually the tax and then there were the duties. And there's where the real rub comes. You see, the tax money, it went to Rome. But the duties, they went to the tax collector's pocket. There were things like documents. They even got into probably high ta- uh, uh, loans, very high loans uh, that were exorbitant rates. But they also were able to be the guardians and the gatekeepers. If you wanted something, you had to go through them. And all of those duties, you had you know, duties on what came in and duties on what went out, and it just piled up and piled up and piled up. And as a result, they became filthy rich. We all know that word, filthy rich, in that double sense you could say there, by exhorting as much money as they could get away with. They didn't have to, the, Rome had a, had a target tax, They've certainly got that. But then after that, they could freewheel it, the freelance it from there. Make it pretty much whatever they wanted it to be. After all, the power of Rome is just right down the street if they someone had a problem with that. Now, today's outline is this. See the text on the, on the screen? The party. That's the first of the outline, too. The party, the pugnacious, and the parable. There's a party going on. There is a group of pugnacious folk having a problem with Jesus and his disciples. And there's a very important parable that this 
Jesus pointed at the, par- at the uh, Pharisees. But as usual, they didn't get it. All right, let's look at the party. Luke tells us that one day, walking probably along the sea sh- uh, shores of Galilee, tells us that he went by this tax collector's place and Jesus picked up a fifth wheel. You know what a fifth wheel is? It's someone that basically, if you get a fifth wheel, you really didn't want this one, but you kind of have gotten stuck with it and it's there and you don't really know quite what to do with it and you really don't appreciate it or value it. Well, that's what Levi was. He was a fifth wheel, a tax collector by the official name of Levi. Now, Jesus simply went up to him. We don't know if he said more than this, but but clearly what he said, in essence, was Follow me. And this is what, this is what the text said. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him, meaning Jesus. Here is this scummy, filthy, rich tax collector. Hated by all. And yet when Jesus says, follow me. He drops everything. And becomes a disciple of Jesus. You know, we've already seen a bunch of miracles that Jesus. I mean, that to me is not, does not qualify technically as a miracle. But it's, it's absolutely mind-blowing. That this man would... Be willing to put all of that he had at stake in order to follow Jesus, wherever that would lead. By the way, this may, we don't know for sure, but this may have been the point in time in which Levi's name was changed to what? Matthew. We know him mostly as Matthew today. And that means gift of God. Dirty, rotten tax collector. Swindler, liar, cheat. Gift of God. Now, the new Levi wanted to honor his new rabbi. So, how is he going to do that? Well, he decided to invite all his rowdy friends over that night for a banquet feast at his house. Nothing spared. The wine was flowing. The food was top-notch. But you know why he brought all his rowdy friends over tonight? He didn't have any others, any other kind but that. Despised, rejected, 
loathed. That's the only friends he could invite Jesus over to party with. That's all he knew. That's all he had. Only they would come. Nobody else would accept the invitation. But other uninvited, we'll call them guests with air quotes, other uninvited guests were nearby. Cue the entrance of the scribes and the Pharisees. And they were outside. They sure weren't going in. But they were listening and watching to all the cacophony and the laughter and the enjoyment. And they were absolutely just disgusted that Jesus was eating in a house like this with sinners and tax collectors. You see, but what really must have been inconceivable to them? I mean, the fact that they were here with Jesus and his disciples eating with this bunch of rabble, this bunch of street scum, what must have really been inconceivable to them was that Jesus, as the friend of sinners, was seeking them out and enjoying their company in Matthew's house that night. A lot of people... I think have a hard time understanding the incarnation of our Lord. And they just can't get certain things around. People, you know, like little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. They, they can't imagine, well, that Jesus, he must have not, not ever cried. As you've heard before, of course he did. Of course, he would have squalled like any hungry child because he was truly human. And Jesus entered in and became the friend of sinners. He got that reputation because of things like this. And you see... It was so inconceivable that the friend of sinners was seeking out such. I once heard a, a godly man, very godly man, who I have a lot of respect for. But I once heard this very godly man that I admired say that he could not conceive of Jesus ever laughing. And when I heard that, I was crestfallen. I was like, what? What? You, you can't imagine the friend of sinners laughing at the 
the wedding feast of Canaan of Galilee. He's the one that brought the best wine. To make wine makes the heart of God glad. I just, how could you, how could you read your Bible and not understand that Jesus was the friend of sinners? Oh, Jesus never crossed any lines to sin, but he knew where he had to fish. He knew where he had to go to find the ones who had a better understanding of who they were and how in debt to God they were than those cats outside. Folded their arms. Can't believe he's in the house with sinners. You see, Levi and his friends were the sorts of people Jesus had come looking for. Those honest enough to admit that they were hard-boiled sinners in need of a great Savior. That's what I am. And I would never want to be anything other because I have that greatest Savior. And so does everyone who knows their need of him. Listen to this quote by Brennan Manning. I am not a, um, I don't know everything that Brennan Manning has read or taught or, or um, uh, put in print probably some things I wouldn't agree with but I do know I agree with this one and I'm going to share it with you Manning said this paradoxically what intrudes between God and human beings is our fastidious morality and pseudo piety it is not the prostitutes and tax collectors who find it most difficult to repent. Did you hear me? It's not those folks who find it most difficult to repent. It is the devout who feel they have no need to repent we're good we're the special chosen of God we don't need we don't need any physician so let's look at the pugnacious <laughs> I think you already know who they are in verses 30 through 35 Mark Twain that notable theologian. You're supposed to be laughing right now. or <laughs> No, he, of course, was not a theologian, but had a little bit of common sense. Occasionally, he was able to spin off uh, something that, that was quite pithy. Here's what Mark Twain said. Having spent considerable time with good people. I can understand 
why Jesus liked to be with the tax collectors and the sinners. Now, that punches. That, that, that carries a wallop. You see, they didn't, they could not imagine themselves in need of grace. They thought they were doing quite fine, thank you. So, the word pugnacious means argumentative and contentious. <laughs> and if that doesn't fit the uh, scribes and the Pharisees to a T, I don't know what does. They were argumentative. They were always trying to come at Jesus, trying to pick a fight, trying to find some way to get under his skin, trying to somehow expose him because they feared him and the life that pulsated from him in everything that he did. And they couldn't stand him being Mary with his new friend, Matthew. If you think Jesus' sarcastic rebuke that he'd already given them about the, the, the lame, you know, they're the ones, you know, they, they, they need the physician. But, of course, you know, you, you don't. Total sarcasm. Like, you fools. You need it most. But, but he basically, but they didn't, they didn't, it didn't even slow them down. When Jesus rebuked them sarcastically and put them in their place, all they did was double down. All they did was just come right back with another. Now, whether it was the same day or the next day, the Pharisees compared Jesus and his disciples to those of John the baptizer. And they said, you know, John's disciples, they fast. And kind of like us, the Pharisees, we do too, by the way. Be sure you know that. Make sure you count that up on the ledger. You see, they... They said, John's boys fasted, and yet your disciples, they go to parties and enjoy themselves. How inappropriate. You guys aren't spiritual like we are, I guess. But Jesus' point was, when he started talking about the wedding, his point was that his disciples didn't need to fast now because they were within reach of the Lord of life, the fountain of every blessing. He was right there with them, right in the midst of them. He was with them. He was saying, why, does, why do I need to fast? Why do my boys need to fast? They're with the one who will make the marriage suffer of the Lamb. You see, Jesus is saying that it is wedding time in redemptive history. It's the greatest wedding promise to come. 
This is the first installment of it. The first landing on planet earth of the marriage supper of the Lamb. One day to be finally fulfilled in the new heavens and the new earth. You don't tell folks at a wedding to drop their punch and cake and to begin fasting. It's not appropriate. It's not appropriate. Nonsensical. Oh, by the way, put down that cake and put down that glass of wine. We've got to. You don't fast in that circumstance. Now, finally, in verses 36 through 39, we see the parable that Jesus taught. Now, again, others, his disciples were listening. They were hearing it too, but of course, he was teaching it at or specifically to the Pharisees and the scribes. Jesus gave the scribes and the Pharisees parables about garments, wine, and wineskins. So he tells parables or stories with a spiritual lesson. And these are important Spiritual lessons that need to be learned. But he's directing them using those metaphors or those word pictures. He's using them to try to reach and for the truth to sink into the hearts of the, of the scribes and Pharisees. Now, with regard to the garment, it's the first thing he mentions. Jesus said nobody in their right mind would dare to use a piece of cloth from a new garment to patch the hole of an old garment because the result would be both would be ruined. So he said, the idea that you would go and put a new patch on an old garment, he says, that's nonsensical, that's crazy. You see, he was in essence saying to them, they didn't get it, but this is what he was saying to them. He had not come to patch up the old forms, but to bring something new and something fresh into this world. Something that the prophets long ago had foretold and promised would come. And he's saying it's here now and it's me. But he says you're trying to do something that's going to destroy both. Then he talked about wineskins. You know what the wineskins are? They're basically a goat or animal that would have been had its... uh, basically shoveled out and and but it became and it was pliable and soft and it could it could expand but it was for holding wine new wineskins would be needed because Jesus was saying you got to have new wineskins because of the new wine of the kingdom that I'm bringing And if you try to put my life pulsating kingdom 
and me inside of that old, crusty, dried up wineskin, I'm going to burst it. it. It can't contain me. It can't. It has to be a new kingdom wineskin. And what Jesus brings will burst the old forms of Judaism. He's saying, you don't know it, but your forms are dying. They are passing away. I am bringing a new, a new kingdom in its fulfillment. Oh, of course, it was not new in the sense that it had not long ago been prophesied in the old covenant. But it was coming to fruition and to reality in Jesus' time. And sadly, his critics were unwilling to try the new, meaning try following me, try advancing my cause. But the reason why they didn't is they were unwilling because they said the old is just, just fine. The old is just as good. No, it's not. The old forms, and particularly, again, it's not that the law of God was out. Jesus would tell us later in the Beatitudes in this very text that we're going to read, Luke's version of it. He's going to tell us, no, it doesn't, it doesn't fade away. What he's talking about is all of the stuff that you've added on to and you've distorted the promises of God and, the, and you have not dealt with his law as it should be. You have not handled it lawfully. You have added and you have diminished it. Your system, it is going down. And yet you're sitting there saying, oh, well, my God's good enough. I don't need to try that new stuff. The old's just fine with me. Give me that old time religion. It's just good enough for me. Listen to this quote by uh, Ralph Davis. You've heard me quote him several times. I told you he's a, one of my favorite uh, professors and expositor. He says, it's no good trying to squeeze Jesus into our old molds. Thinking that Jesus has just brought some additional religious ideas, you can just tack on to your preformed traditions. No. Jesus has brought the new age. The new age of the Messiah. And it's disastrous to mix the tedious transitions of Judaism with the new age of the kingdom of God. He said, you can't mix those two. <laughs> You're putting a new patch on an old. Can't, can't survive. You see, the old covenant simply cannot contain the new covenant practices Jesus came not to reform the old system of Judaism, 
but to replace it with the church, the kingdom of God. You see, instead of summoning the unrighteous to the temple. That's the way it was in the old system, that you had to come wherever you were all, come up to the temple. If you hoped to find forgiveness, you had to come and you had to go to those specific places. Jesus is the temple. He will tell us that multiple times in this book and in the other gospels. He's the temple. No longer does do we come to the temple as they did then. Jesus was saying the day is coming. Remember the woman at the well? When not in this mountain or any other mountain, we sh shall we worship? He said the day is coming because Jesus will be the temple. We don't come to the temple. The temple comes to us. The temple would come to them where they are and save them as they are, as long as they repent and believe the gospel. You didn't have to come to it. Jesus said there's going to be a day when his disciples will be scattered all over the world telling people about Jesus, the friend of sinners, and the one who calls them to inherit his kingdom only if they will repent and believe. Unfortunately, the new way Jesus was bringing would not sit well with the old guard. We shall soon see more on that. Let's pray. Father, I pray that all those in the sound of my voice today will know that the only way to life everlasting, to true peace, to a kingdom that will not fail, is to repent and acknowledge our inability to ever do anything to be, make ourselves right with God. Father, and then re having repented and owned what is our sin, trust in the provision of Jesus, the one who is the temple, the one who brings new wine of the kingdom. And Father, it, it foreshadows some your purposes Lord, thank you for sending him. Thank you, Lord, for sending us out to be ambassadors for him. And Father, we ask now, feed us with this meal of remembrance and what he's done and what he will do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our